Hello, my lovelies. You are now listening to The Vow, Voice of Women. The intention of this podcast is to empower women through sharing of real life stories. We have a fab lineup of inspiring, kick-ass, real, dedicated women. We're going to get down and dirty. What has made these women successful? What makes them tick? How do they handle conflict? And what might they eat in a day? So here we go. Mira um, has a long history um, in her career in mental health, and I'm really excited to have Mira here today. Uh, Our world is really going through a change and a transition, and mental health is a really hot topic. And Mira is the executive director at the Suicide Prevention Center, so welcome Mira. Thank you, Tanya. Can you share with us uh, what services does the center provide to our community? Well, sure. Uh, so the Center for Suicide Prevention has been around since 1981, so quite a long time. And it's an, it was an interesting start. Uh, I'll tell you a bit of the story, and then if you want to cut it out later, you can. <laughs> um, but back in the 70s in Alberta, uh, the government of Alberta went to the University of Lethbridge and said, hey, will you go and do this traffic study? So they went to the engineers there and said, we need a road report of what's going on on our highways. Can you go uh, assess that out? And the engineers said, sure, sure. Away they went and they did this road study and came back to the government and said, here's your report. And here is a list of single car fatalities that we can't attribute to road conditions. We think it's suicide. You need to go figure it out. And the government was like, okay. And back in the 70s, we didn't talk about suicide. Lots of people don't talk about it today. So if we think way back, it was really uh, these engineers were ahead of their time. So the government um, sent out uh, a request for researchers to come in and take a look. And uh, a sociologist at University of Lethbridge named Menno Bolt uh, headed up this investigation and came back and said, yes, indeed, there's a significant amount of suicide in our province. And the Canadian Mental Health Association put up their hand and said, well, we'll help with that work. And so uh, CMHA here in Calgary uh, brought in a group of people to say, what should we do? How can we, how can we help? And what the research showed, and there wasn't a ton of research at the time, but we know with any social issue, one of the ways to bring about change is through education. And so when they looked at people who might be in crisis and how they behave, what we saw was that most of us don't go to a doctor. We might go to a doctor for something and we might mention our mental health, but that's not how we typically behave. Most of us will go to a friend or to a family member, or maybe your hairdresser, or someone who's in your life on a regular basis who you trust. And so that's what these researchers sussed out as well, that this was a valid approach, that people are more likely to just tap someone on the shoulder that they know. So together they gathered all the research in the world, which at the time wasn't a ton, uh, and then they set out to building a workshop which would train people, just everyday regular people, how to respond to somebody who may be at risk of suicide. So how to kind of pick up on what we would call invitations. So if someone is saying things that kind of indicate that they want to talk about how they're feeling, but they're not going to come right out and say, sit down, I have to talk to you. Uh, But they may be saying kind of casual off the cuff remarks. And so um, the people wanted 
us to understand what do those look like and what if we probed those comments what was behind them and how to respond in a thoughtful skilled way to get that person to the help that they needed and the appropriate level of help mm-hmm. that they needed so um, they built this workshop and uh, now in 2020 we still run the workshop it has been going for uh, or it's in its 11th or 12th edition now the people who originally authored it have left and started their own company but uh, center for suicide prevention still has that library uh, of and we add to it every single day and we still run that workshop and the workshop's called assist applied suicide intervention skills training and it is the gold standard in suicide intervention training in the world it's on every best practice registry uh, it's offered in more countries than i could tell you off the top of my head uh, in many languages and it is a universal approach to having a thoughtful conversation with somebody who's considering suicide mm-hmm. So that's the history of my agency, and we continue to be a community educator. So we educate people um, about suicide and its prevention. Okay. And now since uh, conception, obviously, it's evolved, as all businesses do over time. And so how many employees are at the center? Like, just to give us an idea of the size for the city that we live in, because we have about just just under 1.3 million population. So I have to believe that there is a lot of need. Yeah, absolutely there is. So in our office, we have uh, 12 people, and then we have almost 200 people on contract. And those are the people who teach the workshops in the community. And then we teach more than 400 workshops a year throughout the province. So most of those workshops are two-day workshops. Some are just half a day, but most are two-day. And we run more than 400 of them every single year. And these workshops um, in the community, so where are these being held and what? who is going to these workshops? Yeah, so great question because initially when the workshop was first uh, was first new, it was mostly social workers. It was mostly people in those traditional helping professions, nurses, teachers, uh, some psychologists. But as stigma reduces and as the conversation about mental health amplifies, more people realize that it's for everyone. And so a nice uh, analogy would be first aid or CPR. Uh, you know, we used to think, oh, you only do first aid if you're going to be in a situation where, you know, there's going to be injuries. So if you're a lifeguard or if, if you're working in a daycare center. And now we realize first aid is actually kind of a handy thing to have for all of us. Same with CPR. We want to all be able to save a life. And it's the same thing with suicide intervention training. It's for everybody. You don't need to be an expert. Back to the story, most people are more likely to come to a friend. We all have friends, so we all have a role to play. So this course would be good for anybody. Absolutely. Because you know we don't know when the time is gonna come when someone that engages us because they trust us. And I often find, like even in some of the conversations I have with clients and acquaintances in the last six months, I sometimes feel ill-prepared I feel I don't have enough knowledge to comment or help them maybe through some of what they're going through. And um, I think it just gives us another tool in our toolbox, mm-hmm. like CPR, I like that analogy or first aid to be prepared when somebody does come to us. That's exactly it. 
Given the current state of our world, Mara, can you explain what a day looks like for you at the center? Sure. Um, so we've had to pivot. I think is my new favorite word. Uh, my other favorite word is adapt. And I think we can all relate to that, right? Yes. Regardless of our workplaces, uh, just to be able to reach people in this time of COVID. So for us, um, one difficult decision that we had to make was what do we do with our in-person training? We were able to migrate some of our training to online offerings and I, th I think there's lots of training that lends itself to online. I'm not convinced that interpersonal skills-based training lends itself to online. Now that day may be coming and it may be sooner than I think, but right now we still think that there is a lot of value in bringing people together. So it, we did have to weigh um, COVID measures and suicide intervention importance. and. In the end, as soon as uh, Alberta started to open up again back in June, we actually reconvened our in-person training. Now, it's been tricky because we can't put, we typically would put 30 people in a workshop and we can't do that and keep them two meters apart. So the groups are much smaller. And so therefore we're offering the workshops far more frequently because it takes more than two sessions to get through the same amount that we used to do in one. Uh, and uh, demand is high because people are talking about mental health more and more um, and they are supporting each other, clients, um, patients and so we need to be offering that service. So it was a little bit tricky. My staff did come back to the office much earlier than most people's. Uh, there aren't a lot of suites in my building um, that have recalled their staff but we've been back in the office since June uh, just trying to be able to support the community. Well, and I, I, I always go back to the human element and the human interaction and the touch. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in my industry in real estate about AI taking over. I deal with clients in person almost on a daily basis. And I can tell you it's going to have to be a lot of years and a lot of AI technology that changes that because people still like the human interaction. They like the face to face. They like the hug, the touch, and maybe there's a little bit touchy, less touching and hugging going on right now, but even with us, we're sitting here quite a ways apart from each other, and I much prefer to do this and really get a feel for you in person versus on a Zoom call. I think that there's just something, there's a connection that we have, even though we're socially distanced, that we just won't have on a Zoom call. So I can only imagine when you're dealing with people, whether you're educating them in suicide, whether you're helping them through a tough time, that that human element is just so important. Agreed. Yeah, so I'm happy to hear that you're back to those in-person uh, seminars. And I would definitely deem you guys an essential service. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. We're using a lot of bleach. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's okay. You do what you have to do. Are you finding that a certain demographic is calling into the center more now versus say before the previous year? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because our role is to support other agencies uh, and other agencies are also trying to navigate the whole COVID uh, social distancing measures, um, we are doing a lot of different kinds of support. So if we want to be able to do a workshop so that people can train their staff or their volunteers, um, but they're not able to do it, then we've also helped kind of coach from the COVID side as well, or the public health measures side. Uh, so we've definitely been doing a lot of that. 
when it comes to um, actual risk of suicide or increased risk of suicide through COVID, that's that is an interesting question. And the, I mean, the short answer is we don't know yet. Are the stars kind of aligned for bad things to happen? Maybe there's a lot of research going on, and people are turning out rapid reviews kind of every day. Um, it, it's not inevitable. Suicide is preventable. And that's a pretty strong statement. Um, many of us have lost people to suicide and to hear that it's preventable, sometimes hard to reconcile when we've lost somebody. Um, but there are things we can do. And so we, what we don't want to do is just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, the pandemic is doing this to us. No, the pandemic is causing a lot of change, um, but we can adapt and we can still reach out to each other. Just like you said, there's lots of ways we can reach out uh, despite the social distancing, while we may be all struggling with Zoom fatigue, it, it does still have its place. And so there are things we can do. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I'm, I mean, thankfully, I've never been put in a situation where someone has come to me and talked about really contemplating suicide. I would have to believe that if somebody did, that human interaction of someone coming to my doorstep, a friend, an acquaintance would be far more important for me than the risk of getting COVID if I could save someone's life. And, um, you know, I, I'm hearing a lot more about it just with even in my circle, not necessarily specific to suicide, but even mental illness, uh, whether it's depression, anxiety, um, loneliness just seems to be rampant right now. And so um, the, the, the centers that you are supporting that are taking these calls, um, we talk about prevention. And so when people are calling in to get help, what would be kind of, can you share with us, with us not maybe the step-by-step process, but maybe some of the language that is used on some of those calls? Sure. Um, so in Calgary, we're so fortunate. We have the Distress Center. Uh, they answer their phones 24-7. Um, they have chat during specific times uh, and text and email support as well. And they take all the suicide calls. They would also take other kinds of crisis calls. Uh, So people who are kind of at um, other kinds of crises, like whether you've lost your job or your house or you don't know how to navigate a relationship or whatnot, right? They can, they can support in all those kinds of, in all those kinds of themes. When it comes to suicide, what we want to be able to do in a conversation is build trust. And so whether it's a crisis line and so it's, I'm talking to a stranger or if it's with somebody that we know, we want to be able to build trust so that they feel that they can talk to us without fear of judgment. And that's hard because we all love to judge. It's so easy. And we want to really hold that back. So when we talk about having that caring conversation, it could go something like, um, you know, I've noticed this about you. I've noticed these different things about you uh, that are, that have changed, or there are changes in you, and, and I'm concerned. And the best thing to do is be really specific. So I've noticed that, you know, when we have book club on Zoom, you don't log in anymore. What's going on there? Or I've noticed that, you know, when we meet at the dog park to do our socially distanced dog walking, uh, you're not there. How come? Or you're not texting me back like you used to all the time. What's going on? And just kind of open it up for the person. 
And when you can be specific, it helps them not have to kind of, you know, kind of scramble in their head and wonder like, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? Or, you know, kind of build up that anxiety. If you can just be very gentle and specific, then the person can respond just to that. Well, you know, maybe it's as simple as, you know what, I got Zoom fatigue. I can't do one more thing. Okay, fine. Right. But maybe it's like, yeah, I just don't feel like going out anymore. Oh, tell me more about that. Well, you know, things aren't so great lately. Uh, I have this going on. I have this going on. I have, oh, well, sometimes when people, you know, experience all those things, they feel really overwhelmed. Is that you? Yeah. Well, sometimes when people feel overwhelmed, they, they're not sure what to do or, you know, they, they don't know where to turn. Does that resonate for you? And give them opportunities to tell their story. When they start to tell their story, try to let them. Try not to fill in the blanks, right? Or solve it for them. Just let them, just let them tell. If you get comments like, well, it doesn't matter anyways. You know what? Yeah, I like all that's true, but it doesn't really matter anyways. You know, I don't have much time left anyhow. Oh, when you say you don't have much time left, what do you mean by that? Sometimes when people say that, they're thinking of suicide. Are you thinking of suicide? and ask directly. Now, saying it to you in this context, of course I can say it, it is a very difficult thing to say. And so I don't say that lightly, but if you can be specific and if you can say the word, they don't have to. Mm -hmm. All they have to say is, yeah, you know what? I am. And then probably your heart is going to be exploding out of your body and you're going to want to just say, well, just don't do that. Well, promise me this, you know, and and you want to just kind of jump in and solve it because that's, that's how we are. Try to not do that. Try to stay calm. Thank you for being so honest with me. I can imagine that wasn't easy. And then sit with them, sit with them in the yuck. We don't want them to die. We don't want them to kill themselves, but we don't want to tell them what to do. We don't want to take away their autonomy and we don't want to take away their agency. Wow. That's a really big consideration. That's really heavy. Thank you for telling me. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on and just listen. Once you get to a point in the conversation where you feel like you've, they've sufficiently unpacked, call the distress center together. You don't need to solve it. Chances are you can't solve it. And it's not going to be solvable in a simple way anyhow. Suicide is complex. People are complex. Call the distress center together and they'll take it from there. They'll get the person a same day counseling appointment. They'll get them emergency care if that's what's necessary. They will be able to navigate the system. We have so many resources in Calgary. We're so fortunate, but most of us have no idea where to find them or how to go about it. Don't even try, just call them. They've got the database down. Pat and and they'll connect you and your friend to the help that you need. Wow, I'm listening to all of these questions and I'm I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I would have handled that call totally wrong <laughs> because I'm like a fixer and I you know like to give advice. But what I'm hearing is that you asked a lot of questions. You were very calm. You um, listened to their you know what they were going through. So ask questions, be calm, listen. Yes, don't like try to fix because we're not fixers. Yeah. 
wow, okay, well, that was amazing to walk us through that because I totally would have failed that test. (laughs) I just wanted to say that's not true because if you are being a friend, that's what it takes. Mm -hmm. What the only way um, I think that we can fail someone is to walk away. There's no wrong answer because even when we jump in and say things like, now promise me you're not going to do that. You know what? Like, okay, is it the perfect thing to say? Maybe, maybe not, but you're engaging with the person and that's what's perfect. And it came from a place of care. 100%. Yeah. Well, I think most of us, if we heard that and aren't trained to handle those situations, you want to jump in and help and save that person's life. And that's your, and you're probably so very shocked when you hear that as well. I don't think most times when you have the conversation with people, even if it's a beginning conversation, that's the end. You know, you don't think that's the, the, the thing they're going to end with. Exactly. So, so that is really great advice. Thank you for walking us through that, Mara. Do you ever have days where you feel helpless to the situation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we talk to lots of people who have lost somebody. And there is no grief like suicide grief. And there's nothing we can do to bring that person back. After the fact is too late. And it's so hard. It's so hard because we have no answers. When a person is in crisis and considering suicide, that is terrifying. But at least you've still got them, right? And they're engaging with you. They may be yelling and screaming and swearing at you, but you're still engaging with them once they're gone. There's nothing we can do except support those people who are left and create a sense of connection and belonging for them together with others who have gone through something similar. Yeah. Yeah, so true. And so we've talked about um, the center, um, the education part of it, the process when, when people come in. Um, can you share with us maybe some of the good things that are going on that you're seeing uh, during these times and the things that keep you going and motivated and driven? Absolutely. Um, so I'm not, first of all, I'm not one of those Pollyanna that's like, oh, there's always a silver lining. <laughs> I, I hope there is. I'm not always convinced there is. But one thing we've seen out of COVID is Uh, an amplification of the conversation around mental health. Like it used to be that people were concerned or kind of embarrassed or, you know, self-conscious if they were experiencing poor mental health. But now with all of the measures that have been put in place, um, it's almost like you're weird if you're not. And while I don't celebrate that, what I do celebrate is that people are normalizing the conversation. And we're still not, we're not going to accept the situation, but we're recognizing that it's not as uncommon as we may think. So I'm not sure that there is more mental illness now than there was before COVID. We have no evidence to suggest that, but we do have evidence to suggest that social isolation exacerbates how people feel. So if you had some pre-existing condition before COVID, it may be being exacerbated and If you were fine before COVID, you may be feeling the impact of the Zoom and the social isolation and just all the alone time. So we know that that is true. And we do know that people are talking about it more. And the biggest barrier to suicide prevention is stigma. Mm -hmm. 
And if we won't talk about it, we can't solve it. And if we only talk about it in big glamorous ways, like, you know, think back to Marilyn Monroe, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? Then that's not helpful. That can be triggering for so many people and it can bring about bad outcomes for people who are already vulnerable. We want to have open, thoughtful conversation. And just like we're having today, more people are willing to have them and more people are willing to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I even find now more than ever, I'm, um, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky. I, I, um, I don't suffer from mental illness or depression or anxiety. Hopefully I never do. Um, however, I engage people who I know that struggle. I want to talk to them about it because most people, if given the opportunity in a safe place, or my experience amongst friends, especially people where there, there is that level of trust, they do want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I can't speak to, you know, going up to a stranger or a client I don't know well and opening up that conversation. But even, you know, my friends that I know struggle, asking them, you know, how is this? How's your head doing? You yeah. know, how are you doing up here? Um, have you seen someone lately? You know, if I know they, they're seeing somebody on a regular basis for help, is there anything I can do? Do you want to get together? Do you want to talk about it? And I'd say like 100% of the time, they're always willing to open up about where they are in their struggle. And so I think that we have a responsibility as humans <laughs> um, uh, to reach out to the people in our lives that we know struggle uh, and don't just sh- you know shuffle it under the rug and right. hope they come to us because they may not. And it may be the difference in them talking about it and helping their healing. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And recovery is a journey. I know that sounds cliche, but things don't change overnight, no. right? These are long changes. For years, some people struggle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not whether you have bipolar, personality disorder, depression, anxiety. Those are things that you can have had from a very young age and you recognize them now. And there are things that you'll struggle with for the rest of your life, maybe. Right. But during recovery, we can learn how to manage them, yes. right? Yes. So that they don't, aren't managing us. Exactly. Yeah. How do you separate your work life from your home life? So you've had a really heavy day. You come home. Is this just a gift? Is this something you've had to work on? It's definitely something I've had to work on. I think a lot of women in leadership would say that they don't leave their work at work. If they were being honest, a lot of us work outside of our work hours. Some of us work constantly. Um, so I think I have the regular struggles of, of you know, that juggle of wife, mother, leader, you know, my professional life. Um, and uh, so I, yeah, I can check all the boxes <laughs> on those. Um, but I, I do, I have had to learn how to um, be able to say, okay, like I've done what I can today and now it's my time to do something else. And, and that's been a real struggle for me and um, some days are better than others. Some days I can do it and some days I still don't. Um, I definitely, uh, for many years in this role, I needed to see a psychologist on a regular basis just to be able to keep me grounded because it's so easy to take on other people's pain. And I don't want to lose that sensitive part of me, but I also don't want it to eat me. And so I had to learn how to 
balance those two and um, I will probably be learning that the rest of my life yeah. but uh, but I did have to develop some skills to be able to kind of survive in the role yeah oh, I can only imagine I mean uh, I'm in a very different role I still have stress in my job which actually I've only recognized as stress probably in the last year mm-hmm. I never recognized it you know as stress and now I recognize it as okay I this is a stressful situation I've had a stressful day and it's very difficult to sometimes separate that from when you walk in the door and you have to go into this mother wife you know dinner homework mode when you have what feels like at the time maybe the weight of the world or the situation on your shoulders so to your point I think if we're honest it's a very difficult thing to do I think we we have to have those times where we do do that to be able to be present Mm -hmm. with our families and our husband but it doesn't mean that it's easy exactly yes um, and how did you find yourself in this profession? This isn't, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm assuming you didn't like pop up out of bed one day and say, this is what I want to do. Or maybe you did. Tell us about that, Mara. Um, no, I definitely didn't. Um, so, I mean, when we think about it, Center for Suicide Prevention is an education center. So we do work in mental health, but the way we work is in education. Uh, and it is also nonprofit management. So if I take the content out and just sort of look at the structure, uh, and that is my background. So um, my undergrad is in education. My graduate work is in public policy and, and nonprofit management. So from an education perspective, it, it fits perfectly. Um, but it is not something that I aspired to. Some people do. Some people, you know, start off in social work or sociology and they say, I want to study suicidology, which actually is its own discipline. Um, and we need those people. We need those researchers out there uh, studying things for us. But that wasn't me. Um, I, uh, I was recruited by the past chair of the board who has since died, but we're going back many, many years now. Uh, and, and he said, um, I worked for him in a different capacity. Uh, and he said, well, when you're ready, I want you to come and work at Center for Suicide Prevention. And I said, well, I don't know anything about mental health, which wasn't exactly true, but it wasn't my focus at the time. Uh, and like I said, this a, a couple decades ago, but um, he said, that's okay. You'll learn as you go. And, um, and what your skills, the skills you can bring to the table would benefit the center. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And it's interesting. I think sometimes when you change disciplines, it's helpful because you bring a new perspective. Uh, and so I think I was able to do that a little bit at the beginning and, um, and it's just grown from there. And you love what you do. I really, I really derive great meaning from what I do. Mm. I never leave work at the end of the day and think, Oh, well, that was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. I know every day that the work that I put in makes a difference in somebody's life. Mm-hmm. Some days I love it. Some days I do not. Fair. <laughs> uh, some days I do feel like I'm being eaten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and some days I feel like, you know what? We're moving the needle. This is cool. Yeah. What brings you joy uh, in your day when you're dealing with crisis on a regular basis? I would have to say it's the relationships. Um, I have an amazing team and I, I could not do a fraction of what I do without them. Um, 
we we have really evolved the way we work together uh, and uh, and it's just it brings me so much joy to see kind of the interactions amongst us and the, and the le- like legitimate teamwork everyone contributing their own part in order for a lot of our initiatives or projects to move forward so that that is definitely my biggest joy in the work that I do and what are some of the things you like to do outside of work what brings you joy outside <laughs> Well, that is a really good question because I think that's, well, I think it's an important question for women in general, right? Because Mm -hmm. usually our me time is the first to go and the last to be recovered on the weekly schedule. Uh, And yet, if we don't feed ourselves, we can't help anybody. Amen. So... um, so I and I'm saying that out loud also for my own benefit. <laughs> That's okay. But uh, yeah, I love to cook, and I love to run. And if you love to cook, you should love to oh, run. Yes. <laughs> I, I always say I run so I can eat. exactly. Because so yeah. I'm a runner too, and uh, it it allows me to eat what I want to eat. Of course, uh, you know, within reason. <laughs> well. Mira, thank you so much for coming. And just before we end our podcast today, um, I'm just wondering if uh, there are any charities of choice that you would like to spotlight today. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't spotlight my own, <laughs> yes. but I would also like to spotlight the Distress Center because the, of the tireless work that they do. And so if anyone is listening to this podcast who is concerned about someone, if you are worried about somebody and thinking they may be thinking of suicide or if you are thinking of suicide reach out to the distress center and they will take your call any time of the day or night 403-266-4357 and if you want to learn more about suicide and its prevention then come to our website suicideinfo.ca and we have just an abundance of resources that we are constantly publishing, updating. Uh, We take all of the research and the literature out there and we translate it into easy bits for people to consume. So it's for the layperson. It's not for experts, though experts are always welcome, Uh, but it's for everyone. And uh, if you go on our website, you can join all of our social media platforms if that's the kind of information that you would like. We have a huge social media presence because it is a stigmatized issue and people want to find out about it from the privacy of their phone. Uh, they'd much rather do that than pick up brochures and pamphlets, um, even though we do produce those as well. So suicideinfo.ca or visit the Distress Centre if you're concerned about someone. Which is 24-7. Which 24-7. Is amazing. Amazing. The work they do oh, is incredible. Wow. And is that volunteer work or is that, um, uh, you know, a, a people who have been hired in those positions? Yeah, so both. Uh, The Distress Centre answers two main lines. One is the crisis line and one is 211. So 211 is community support. 211 is answered by staff. So people who have been trained to some degree in social work, might be social workers, might be um, more like assistants, but they've been trained in that field. The volunteers answer the crisis line. And that may be surprising to people, but the research shows that uh, fully skilled and trained volunteers, how do I say that? Highly trained volunteers actually yield equal or better outcomes for people in crisis than paid people. Wow, that's very interesting. And why is that? Part of it is uh, the, the power of the caring conversation. 
mm-hmm. and um, and volunteers who elect to volunteer in that capacity do so for a reason. Mm-hmm. Now, my understanding is sometimes on their overnight shifts that might be augmented by paid people as well, mm-hmm. uh, but they have an incredible uh, army, really, of volunteers. Wow. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah, I didn't realize that. And last but not least, what have you vowed to yourself? Uh, what have you promised to yourself in life or vowed to yourself moving forward? I think for me, it's um, we don't always see the hope, whether it's in our professional life or our personal life. But I think the vow to myself is that it is there, whether I can see it or not is immaterial it's still there and then i can remember that when things are heavy and when things feel like they're never going to let up uh that the hope is is still there and that i can still find it yes hope i think that that is you know you used a word in the beginning pivot you know that's a word you're using and and i think hope is just another really strong word for people that are struggling or um, people that need a path forward, that there is hope even through crises. Mara, thank you so much for being here today and sharing with us um, what you do and how you're helping our city. And I really believe uh, your team and yourself are kind of the silent warriors behind mental illness right now and helping people get through that. So thank you for your service to the city. Thank you for your team and thank you for being here and sharing your story. Tanya, thanks so much for having me on. This is a real privilege. Thank you. to our podcast, rate us. If there's any suggestions you can make or feedback, we would love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.